We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, well, I've got a, uh, several messages for you today uh, that are not necessarily uh, kind of part one, part two, part three, but three things that are related to the uh, Christmas uh, situation that we find ourselves in today. And uh, we do want to uh, acknowledge uh, our Savior's incarnation. I know some people have um, a few not not so much in our midst that I'm aware of, but have qualms about uh, the celebration of Christmas. In fact, I was just in a business establishment where I know the people profess to be Christians that own it, and um, I wish them a Merry Christmas, and uh, they, the lady kind of took, uh, was taken aback by that. No, we don't celebrate Christmas uh, because Christ is in our hearts all the time, and uh, of course, <laughs> theologically, I understand that. But uh, I said, I just kind of chided a little bit and said, well, it's okay for us to recognize and celebrate the incarnation of the Lord, um, because it is. Uh, we've gone over, over the years, all of the uh, you know, ins and outs of what's the, what's the date, when did it actually happen, is that the important part of it, and all of that sort of thing. We've, we've done that, and I think we've dealt with some with the, the matter of Christmas decorations and lights and trees, and people get kind of, you know, bent out of shape, if I may put it that way, and unoffensively to you, if you believe this way, that, you know, Christmas trees are part of a pagan tradition, and we can't do that, and all that sort of thing. Nobody today thinks about those origins. They just, you know, put up a tree and put lights on it because it's cheerful and beautiful in these dark days of winter, and it reminds us of Christmas and the gifts and all of that sort of thing, the fun ornaments. Uh, they've become a, tr- a cultural tradition. Uh, nobody's worshiping their Christmas tree, I don't think. <laughs> so, better not be. Uh, yeah. Um, so, and if you have that problem, why you ask me to come over and I'll help you uh, take that Christmas tree and pitch it right out into the trash and we'll take care of that bad worship problem right now. Uh, so, yeah, we don't, we we don't uh, you know make too much of a deal of uh, of the holiday as if it's the most important day of the year or something like that uh, you know and and everybody has their their uh, little take on things as and we we learned good doctrine in Romans 14 that some esteem some days higher than others and others every day alike and um, you know if you want to go to work tomorrow that's your business I'm not going to do that <laughs> I'm going to enjoy time with family. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm convinced about that in my mind. And if you ever have any questions about that, I'd be happy to uh, field those at some point and we can talk about them. But today what I wanted to do is talk about the doctrine of the incarnation as to what it accomplished exactly. What was the virgin, or what did the virgin conception and birth do? How, what did it uh, create, if you will? What, what situation did it put us in? 
And in short, we can say that the incarnation, in the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's using biblical language. But that has been found to be, over the years, uh, a summary which uh, people have driven a truck through and uh, brought all kinds of uh, heresy in the freight with their truck. And so we've had to, uh, over the course of Christian history, specify carefully what that means lest we get into to a heresy. The concept itself of the incarnation should not be a um, terrible surprise to us or something we think that is entirely foreign to uh, human condition. The world's religions and the world's fantasy stories and uh, have told for years, centuries, millennia, stories of gods and demigods and heroes entering into the human race from outside of the human race. You're familiar with those from your study of, uh, we could say, uh, religious anthropology or you know, religious history and that sort of thing. Superhuman, supernatural powers uh, were supposed to have come into the human race through various means, through these gods or demigods or heroes, and it still captivate the human imagination today. People were easily able to think of such an idea, uh, and God had already planned from before time that such a thing would, in fact, in truth, in reality, occur. But it wouldn't occur just like the human imagination has run wild with in terms of you know, supernatural beings. There are you know, myths and legends even about Jesus and uh, what he did and so on, but they're not biblical. Uh, so the incarnation of God in fleshed is a little bit different than those, than those uh, fantasies and imaginations. And in, in fact, the origin of the idea of God among men probably is sourced in the human psyche in Genesis 1 through 3. Because God fellowshiped with Adam and Eve in the garden and walked with them there. And then Satan showed up in the form of a serpent, a kind of demigod, if you will, a, a, a false you know, god, of course, but a, a powerful being, a deceptive being, who came into the human condition in Eden and interrupted the purity of that place, but still in a kind of visible format, if you will, an appearance to Adam and Eve. And so since that time, with that background in the first two humans, and probably the accounts that they gave of those to their children, the human imagination has not had to run too far to think of a deity or other supernatural creature interacting with human beings somehow. And of course, there have been interactions of demons and Satan and God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and angels with humans, right? So there are those things. Now, although we say that God became a man, would you say that you fully grasp what that means? Okay, so now from a kind of a defending the faith perspective, especially for some of you younger people here, what I'm doing is I'm kind of laying out that there is a challenge with the idea of the incarnation that your atheist 
or agnostic or naturalist friends are going to pose, and you need to be able to give an accounting of what you believe and why you believe it. First of all, it's difficult because there is no one to compare the God-man to. You know, you could say, you know, I'm like you and you're like me, and what are the properties of a human being? You know, the physical appearance and the emotional makeup and the intelligence and all that sort of stuff. But there is no one else, no classification that we can put the God-man into that's like, that you can say, well, it's like all those other ones. (laughs) There are no other ones. He is unique. He doesn't belong to a class or a species or a group. He is the only one, like Tigger of cartoon fame who said, but the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is, I'm the only one. (laughs) And because of that uniqueness, people struggle to believe and understand the truth of the incarnation of, of Christ. Now, to be accurate, Jesus is not only uh, the only human being, and he's not the only person of the Godhead, you know, so he's not the only human, and he's not the only person of the Godhead. There are many humans, and there are three persons of the Godhead, but he's the only one that brings the two together. Remember uh, Job, in chapter 9 of Job, asked, who is it that's going to be able to lay his hand on both God and man to bring us together? Job 9.33 fascinating passage of scripture. Job is a pretty smart fellow. You know, in Job 19, he says, I know that in my flesh, from the standpoint of my flesh, I will see my redeemer. I know that he lives. That's ancient, ancient theology. I mean, that's, that's way back, you know, 4,000 years ago. This is not with the benefit of, you know, Isaiah 53 and Matthew chapter 1 and Paul's writings and the epistles and all that. It's, a, it's amazing that he had that insight from God. The word incarnation means to embody in flesh, and its Christian meaning is that the second person of the Trinity was embodied permanently in flesh and took on human nature for for the rest of eternity. Make sure you understand that when you think about Jesus, you must think about him as the God-man today, December 24th, 2023. He didn't leave when he, when, he went, when he ascended to heaven, he didn't leave his humanity behind. He's still a God-man today. So when he stands before the throne of grace, um, making intercession, advocating for you, he is still the God-man. And he still shares that likeness with you in which he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, of course, and is able to be a perfect high priest for us since he has entered into our entered into our condition. And my point is not to really go down the, the, the road today of saying, you know, why he had to do this, but it's true. Theologians have become convinced, uh, easily convinced, that Jesus, the, the, Jesus couldn't redeem what he didn't become. He became a human, fully human. He, uh, he became a man so that he could die but he had to be God so that his death could have infinite value. Now, the Lord, we're getting some more technical things. The Lord did not unite himself with a human person, but with human nature. Okay? If you were to suppose that he united himself with a human person, that person would have been 
would have come into existence kind of the normal way, and then he would have come upon that person, and you would have two, a divine person and a human person in one encasement, in one tent. And that's not what the Christian doctrine of the incarnation is. He took on a human nature because he was already a divine person. No new person needed to be created uh, from, from, for him or from eternity past, that second person of the Trinity. Now, let me give you a couple of texts of the Scripture. Just quickly, I'm going to run down through these that describe the incarnation from the Bible using Bible language. In Matthew 20, 28, it says that he came. In John 1, 14, he was made flesh. In John 3.13, it says he came down from heaven. In John 3.17, he was sent. In Romans 1.3, he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. These notes are on the website, by the way, if you want to get access to them. Uh, Romans 8.3, he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful, but in the likeness of it. He sure looked exactly like every other sinner out there, but he wasn't a sinner. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.47 says he's the second man, the Lord, from heaven. 2 Corinthians 8.9, he became poor. How? Why? So that we might become rich. Galatians 4.4, he was made of a woman. Philippians 2.7, he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself. 1 Timothy 1 says, verse 15, he came into the world. Chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 Timothy says, he was God manifested in the flesh. Hebrews 2.9, he was made a little lower than the angels. Okay, when I'm saying these, I'm trying to say them with a, a little pause that you would think with me as I say them. Okay, not just sit there with a blank stare and say, when's this Sunday school class going to be over? <laughs> I want you to think that he was made a little lower than the angels. He was made like unto his brethren, Hebrews 2.17. Hebrews 10.5, a body was prepared for him. 1 John 3.5, he was manifested. He was manifested to take away sins, but he was manifested. Hebrews 2, also 14, he partook of flesh and blood so that he might taste death for every man. Now, properly understanding the incarnation protects us against falling into the trap of false teaching. And here are a few thoughts particularly about that. Um, when we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about the Son of God becoming man or taking upon him human nature and flesh. What I want you to do, though, when you think about Son of God, the phrase Son of God, is don't confuse it with Son of Mary. Okay, Jesus was born from Mary as an offspring. But his relationship to God is not an offspring of God. Does that make sense? Okay, Jesus as son of God means that the word son is used in the sense that he is of the same nature. He's of the same nature, not subordinate, not created, not with a beginning, not uh, begotten, 
like, you know, like uh, birthed. He's totally equal in, in deity, totally equal in worthiness of worship and his attributes. So son means deity and equality with God. When you read he's the son of God, do not think offspring of God. Son of Mary, that's a different matter. You can understand Jesus as coming as a baby. Absolutely, totally fine. But the son of God is not the same. Son of man is a similar phrase. How do you, how do you think of the son of man? You probably never thought of son of man referring to him being an offspring, have you? Well, maybe you have. I haven't. Son of man refers to his characteristic as a man and with the connection back to the book of Daniel really elevates him beyond manhood to godhood. Uh, ironically, when it says man, it really is, is uh, son of man is a pointer to his deity. Uh, you know, he came to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 and what? He received for himself that kingdom from him. So son, very important idea when we think about the Incarnation. We also remind ourselves that God is one, not two or three gods. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. We believe that too, even though we cannot fully understand it. Um, just on that note, by the way, this is a simple kind of low-level illustration, but you believe a lot of things that you don't understand, don't you? Do you understand how those lights are functioning right now? <laughs> now, so if you don't, if you don't understand, you, you know they're on. You know the electricity is getting there somehow. You might not know how it comes and where, where it comes from out on the pole. And, you know, some people are scared of electricity and they don't want to touch it and all that sort of stuff. I don't care. I just turn the circuit off and do the wiring and then turn it back on. Uh, it's fine. But um, you believe it, yet you don't understand it. Now, if you don't believe something, if, I'm sorry, if you don't understand something as simple as a light fixture, fully how it operates, do you have, how can I say it? Could you just humble yourself and say, I cannot fully understand God? God is much bigger than a light fixture. <laughs> so it's no surprise to us that we're not going to fully understand God if we don't fully understand electricity and LED light fixtures and fluorescent tubes and incandescent and Thomas Edison and you know, electrical generation and ground planes and wires and all of that sort of stuff. We have no clue, most of us, how these things function. You, do you believe you exist? You know, I think, therefore, I am. <laughs> okay, yeah, let me see. Yeah, it's real. Uh, you don't know how your body functions. You don't know 10% of how your body functions. All the chemical reactions that go on, the marvelous mechanical design that God has made, yet you believe, and you're certain of that in the limited amount of knowledge that you have. Um, variations from the doctrine that we have just spoken about, that God is one, that he is one God and three persons, variations of that put somebody into a, a bad category, we call heresy or false teaching. We further affirm the following truths. Jesus is truly and completely human. Okay, Docetists 
say that Jesus appeared to be human, that he seemed to be human. He was a phantom human. No, rather, you know, Jesus was not mostly human. Um, Apollinarians are another group that taught that Jesus lacked a human spirit because the human spirit was taken over by the divine spirit. And the reason they did that is because, again, it's difficult to understand how can God and man be united in a hypostatic union in one perfect person. To try to understand that is difficult. And you get into all kinds of error when you go too far. Now, Jesus is truly and completely human. Does that mean that he was a sinner? Now, immediately you recoil at that. But if he's truly and completely human, what human do you know that doesn't have sin? Sin was not an original design feature of humanity. It's a bug, to say it in a computer programmer's lingo. It's a bug that wasn't designed into the system. Actually, probably not a bug because a bug would indicate a failure of design. It's more of a virus. The virus got into the system. So Jesus is truly human, but one feature of humanity that is universal today is not included in that humanity. That is how why we say sin is accepted, is, 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 not, is excluded from this likeness. But this isn't a problem because uh, as, as if it makes Jesus less than fully human. Remember, you do know two people that were without sin for a time. Their names were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were without sin. And then, in the far future, imagine you and all of your fellow people of God existing in heaven with no sin in you or around you. All of humanity redeemed humanity, that is, will have that experience of being without sin. And in fact, that's going to go on for a very long time. <laughs> I understate the case. So that when we, if we can, kind of think back to our lives in the world creation the last six, seven, eight thousand years, it will look like a small blip on the large time scale of things. Um, Sin is a condition, we might say, a damage to the human nature, and it does not make one more human to be a sinner. If anything, sin makes us less human because we're less like how God designed us to be in the garden. We're damaged. The image of God has been marred, and so we don't achieve the heights of what humanity could have achieved apart from sin. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's an it's a interesting little thought. But if sin, if anything, sin, I think, makes us less human than we could have been, and we will be more of what God designed us to be later on. Back to our theme, though, about the incarnation. Jesus is not only truly and, and really man, but he's also truly and completely God. He was not created, okay, The Arian heresy, that's A-R-I-A-N heresy, suggests that Jesus was a created being. 
that has been carried forward from 2,000 years ago into a cult called the JWs today. So these things that we're talking about are still relevant today. They're not just for church history or theological musing. Jesus was not merely a good man or a good teacher, the Ebionites would say. He was not adopted or made into the Son of God during his earthly life. Mormons suggest that doctrine. Adoptionists, are, they're called more generally, or this is a strange term, dynamic monarchians. You don't have to memorize all these, but those are names that theologians use to categorize people who believe these ways. Also, the Son of God is not the same person as the Father. There is a, a difference between the persons, even though there's a unity in the divine nature and a oneness of God. The Trinity is not three modes or masks or offices of one strictly monotheistic God. So, illustration. Uh, young man over here, these young fellows are uh, sons and they're students and they're friends and they're brothers. So they have four offices, if you will say, or four functions, four relations, but they're one single person. That's not how God is. It's not like God has the, the son mask and the spirit mask and the father mask, but there's just one man behind the curtain, right? There are three persons. Again, difficult to understand, but true based on the scriptural revelation. Furthermore, Jesus himself is a single person, not two. One person, not two. There were some called Serinthians, not Corinthians, but Serinthians who believed in a split personality where Christ came upon a man and left the man at a later time. Say, you know, when it was inconvenient for him to be there, like on the cross. <laughs> you know, who wants to be on the cross? Nestorians similarly believed there were two persons housed in one body. That's a strange notion. But Jesus, in addition to being one person, has two natures. He has a divine and a human nature. Uh, that's another hard thing to, 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 to understand uh, because we're, we're one person with one nature, one human nature. But in fact, if we're saved, we kind of understand it a little bit because we have a divine nature. and We have our sin nature. And so we have this two, two thing going on inside of us. Paul exposed that in Romans 7, I believe, when he talked about it's, you know, I sin, but it's not I who do it, but sin that dwells in me and kind of this almost spiritual schizophrenic condition that we have where we feel like, man, I shouldn't be doing this sin, but I'm doing this sin. And uh, we understand that struggle. Well, that's two natures in one. That's a good illustration for us to try to understand a little bit how Jesus could have a pure, perfect human nature and a perfect divine nature in two in two in one person. Um, sometimes theologians would suggest that, well, there's a merged nature, merged into one, so that you would have a uh, what's called monophysite um, situation with Christ, where he's neither human nor divine. He's some kind of third thing. Or the divine so overtakes the human, we just mentioned this earlier, that there really is no human nature left to him. 
Jesus also had two wills, one each arising from those two natures. How do we know that? Well, in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but thine. He's making a distinction there. There's some kind of a distinction. Now, his will, his human will, always, because he was the Son of God, came under perfect uh, coordination with and subordination with the will of the Father, which is the will of the Logos. But he had two wills. All, all of this is what the incarnation accomplished. It implemented this kind of situation in the person of Christ, and it is, uh, we could say, the miracle of all miracles. Did Mary understand all of this? <laughs> but she believed it. She, she was blessed, Elizabeth said, because you believed the word of God. And she was willing to serve God in whatever capacity he wanted, even if she didn't understand everything that was going on. The, uh, there's a, a number of... Um, People in history have tried to put words to this, have tried to summarize this, and here's one that was kind of the uh, culmination of a series of events over the first few centuries of church history. It's called the Chalcedon Definition of Faith. It says this, two paragraphs, let me read them. Following then the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach that it should be confessed that our Lord Jesus Christ is one and the same God, the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the same consisting of a rational soul and a body. And then they use this Greek phrase, homoousios, we'll say of the same substance with the Father as to his Godhead, and the same, again, homoousios, same substance with us as to his manhood. And all things like unto us, sin, only accepted, begotten of the Father before ages as to his Godhead, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, and then they use this other Greek term theotokos, that is born of God, born by God as to his manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, made known in two natures, which exists without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, you know, with that, that merging idea of making one nature, without all that, the difference of the natures having been in no wise taken away by reason of the union, but rather the properties of each being preserved and both concurring into one person and one, another Greek term, hypostasis, not part, parted rather or divided into two persons. Prasopa, they call it, two persons. But one and the same Son and only begotten, the divine Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from old have spoken concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and as the symbol of the fathers has delivered to us. So I conclude. We, we cannot come to a doctrine like this and expect to bend it into something that we can easily understand without effort. Just because it is difficult does not mean that it's untrue. There's a logic out there that says this, um, and the, our JW friends have, have used this 
told me this before. Um, God would never give us something that we cannot understand. Therefore, the Trinity cannot be true. Just because it's difficult to understand doesn't mean that it's untrue. And furthermore, how is it that we expect the singular God of the universe, the unique God-man, to be something just like us? We are complex beings comprised of body and spirit, emotion and will, affections and desires, heart and mind. Our body alone is a machine of unparalleled complexity, a marvel of design and of chemical and mechanical intrigue. God is so much more than we are, so much higher, so infinite, so marvelous that we cannot but expect that his constitution would be way beyond the limit of our understanding. But the wonder of wonders is that we can know him, though not comprehensively, we can know him truly, through Jesus Christ, and that knowing, John 17, 3 says, is eternal life. That they would know you, the only true God, and your Son, whom you have sent. This knowledge is eternal life. So I guess we've accomplished a couple of things. We've gone over the orthodox doctrine of the, of the person of Christ and his incarnation, but we've also kind of made the uh, case in terms of defending the faith that uh, we need to be humble and underneath, if you will, the truth of who Christ is and not rise up in rebellion against it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incarnation. We celebrate in these days the truth of it, but we wanted to today pause and spend a little time thinking more deeply about what that truth is and recognize the miracle of it, the wonder of it, the uh, graciousness of it that you would come in the form of a servant and give your life even on the cross to redeem humanity to yourself. Lord, we even confess we don't fully understand how or in some ways, why it's necessary that you would do it that way. But knowing that you are wise above all, infinitely knowledgeable, eternally powerful, wonderfully glorious, we submit ourselves and say, you must know better than we do, and we trust you. Lord, help us to do that, to trust you, each one, to think deeply, if nothing else this morning, to think deeply about what Christian teaching is and not just blow it off or uh, think that we in our few years of wisdom and knowledge have, have attained that which seasoned theologians, philosophers, scientists, and thinkers have spent centuries honing and trying to explain in an accurate fashion. Help us to be intellectually humble that way, Lord. 
thank you for the incarnation again and uh, for this time of the year that we can take some time to think about it. I thank you for your people and their attentiveness this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.